You know, it was 22 years ago this week that I taught for the first time at the Center Zen Center, which was the birth, although we didn't know it then, of the Pasana Centers. So it's interesting that that's true, since this is also the first night of the series of my last teachings, at least in this role. So I'll say some more about that later to allay any fears that I'm disappearing off the planet, uh, which I'm not, actually. So this tradition that we practice in, this Theravadan tradition, is rooted in the spiritual life of India of 2,500 years ago. And those of you who were here Monday night to hear Stephen Batchelor talk, um, heard a little bit about that and about how the form that Buddhism took at that time was, was rooted in those traditions in the deeply monastic style of practice that was true then. And um, and he talked about, um, he, he likes the phrase secular Buddhism. And one of the ways he likes to use it, which I thought was quite interesting, is he talks about the word secular actually means of the time of. And that what we need to do now in this 21st century is as we continue to practice and explore how the Buddha's teachings can be useful to us is to find the Buddhism of the 21st century. And it certainly is a time when there are still monastic people who practice, <laughs> monks and nuns. And in fact, I haven't actually had a chance to talk about it in here yet. Um, two weeks ago, three weeks ago at Spirit Rock, we had an amazing ordination of three women who were, were given the full nun's ordination in the Theravadan world. Now, you may not realize that that's of any particular significance, but it actually is quite astounding because the theory in the Theravadan world was that the nun's lineage died out, oh, I don't know, many hundreds of years ago. And the response of many of the monks is, oh well, we lost the key and therefore it can't be reopened. And the women have said, no, no, if you lose the key, you find another one. And then you open the door and that's exactly what they did. They went through the lineages that um, are available in China and um, ordination has now begun to happen in Sri Lanka and now a little bit in um, Thailand and certainly here in America. So, you know, the, the Buddhism of our time still has that monastic thread for some people. But, if I look around the room, here we are. None of us is ordained. Has anybody in here ever been ordained? Right. Sometimes, there, sometimes there's a couple of people who have had been ordained for short periods of time. So, so we haven't been ordained. Anybody planning on getting ordained? No. Okay. That might be true too. And, and it certainly is available sometimes for short periods of time. 
if you're interested, just to try it out. Um, so we're householders, and, and really the question is then, how do we do this practice as householders? How do I practice in the midst of a householder life? You know, what happens, like today, my kitchen sink was completely plugged up and the water would go nowhere, and I have a group of people coming to my house for a workshop this weekend, tomorrow. So what do I do, and how do I practice in the face of that kind of thing, when it's your sink, or your car, or your sick child, or your relationship that's hit a rocky spot? And I've been reflecting recently, when I, I was talking about this with the Tuesday group, about when I say the refuges now, I'm actually not thinking so much about refuge in the Buddha. I think about refuge in awakeness. And, you know, the awakeness of the Buddha was whatever awakeness, amazing, I'm sure, that he had. But I actually don't think the Buddha was some kind of magical being who knew everything there was to know about quantum physics and psychology and, and all of that kind of thing. And I more think that whatever it was that happened to him meant that he was utterly willing to be awake to whatever he found to be true in any moment which is actually a pretty amazing state if you think about it. That willingness to be fully and completely awake and present. And so this question of how do we live our lives as householders really means how do we bring that kind of awakeness? How do we use everything in our lives to help us wake up? There's nothing, there's nothing in your life that can't help you wake up if you approach it in the right way. And so these are questions that have really fascinated me for years. Some of you, I look around the room, a few of you remember the day, days when I used to teach what I called householder retreats, which I haven't done for a while. I'm not quite entirely sure why. It got a little busy once we moved here. But, you know, we would meet every day for a week or so, um, at whatever we had for available space at the time. Sometimes it was people's homes. And then during the day, people would go to work and they'd sleep in their own beds at night. And I don't know, it's a format that maybe I'll use again when I come back to teach when I'm here. It might be fun to do it that way. So we've been talking about these questions for a long time. I have, anyway. And I'm very interested in that place where we're trying to see what is the freedom that can be had in this moment? Where can I be completely free in this moment? Not the next moment, and not the last moment, but this moment, right now. So in these weeks, these last weeks of, um, before my role changes here, then that's what I particularly want to talk about is there's different aspects of everyday life, my everyday life, our everyday life, that have seem to have some particular significance for waking up. So tonight, partly because I am teaching this couples <coughs> workshop this weekend, I wanted to talk um, especially about relationships. So I'm a little curious. How many people, besides me, in this room, either came to your spiritual practice or or some kind of practice of opening, so it might have been what, what you came to with therapy first, 
or substantially deepen your practice at a time when some relationship or other in your life, work, intimate relationship, children, whatever, got difficult. Oh. <laughs> yeah, a lot of us. Right, right. Right, that's what I thought. It's really interesting to think about that, about how these relationships of ours often are what propel us into looking at who we are, how we are, what we are, where can we find some freedom, even in the situation. And I think it's really important, as we talk about this, I'm not talking just about intimate relationships, because not all of us are in intimate relationships right now. You know, although that's certainly one of the things that I'm very interested in, intimate relationships, couples relationships of all sorts. But there's parents and children, and there's deep friendships, and there's many, many kinds of working situations that can sometimes be very, very intense. Or even as I think about life here at Vipassana Santa Cruz, maybe being on a board together. You know, that's been interesting on occasion. And, and all of the things that happen when you're a community that's going through its own life. So I do know that in my own case, I was kind of cruising along being, you know, a, a good church-going, if you can imagine, young mother in my um, late 20s. And, and then my first marriage hit a really bumpy spot. It was the first set of rocks, I think, the first shoals. It took several, actually. Um, And I kind of went, oh, I think there might be some things I'm not looking at and I'm not seeing. And so that at that point, I began to work with a Jungian therapist. And, And then things began to unfold, and it's ultimately unfolded into this Buddhist practice. So our relationships touch very, very deep places in us, and often places that are even hidden, even to ourselves, and, and they're wounded, and, and so when they get touched, that's what triggers the search, the search. One of my most important teachers in all of this time um, is a man that Jack Cornfield sent me to. Um, his name is Hamid Ali. Some of you know his work. He um, teaches what's called the Diamond Approach, and his school is called the Ridwan School. He's based in Berkeley. I completely recommend his work to you if you're interested. And he has a very interesting model that's worth considering as you think about where is it that this relationship question, um, where is it that it resonates for you? And he, so he says, it's a developmental model. And he says, you come in, and you know, you're about this big, right? And he talks about, his word is essence. He says, you're nothing but essence, or you're nothing but being. And, you know, we know, we know that there's some prenatal influences or there's some genetic influences. There's there's different things that are already true in a new child, a new baby. But it's pretty unstructured, you know. There's a lot you don't know and a lot that you aren't at that point. But 
what happens almost as soon as you're born, right? You start being in the relationship world because you immediately have some um, form of caregiver, whoever your primary caregivers were, and then later on, you know, you get to be a little bigger, and then you have teachers, and you probably might have siblings somewhere along the line, maybe they're already there when you come in, um, and then as we get, get a little bigger, then the, our peers begin to be pretty significant in our lives, and they create sometimes even terrible wounds. Um, but all the way along, I, and I'm sure we could probably take a lot of time talking about it if we wanted to here, we all have our stories of how we were hurt along the way and different things that happened to us. And as that wounding happens, then, of course, what also happens is you start figuring out how to take care of yourself. And children are amazingly good at this. And again, there's some really good stories that, that people tell about different things that they did in order to take care of themselves because they had a violent mother or a father or a really difficult brother or a teacher who was abusive or whatever. And these, these defenses, which work really, really well for you when you're four or six or eight, unfortunately get kind of built in, right? And then they don't always work so well when we hit adult life and other kinds of relationship. So Hamid, Hamid Ali, teaches that, okay, so this is true, and then somewhere, here you are now in your 20s or 30s or 40s, and you go, oh, it's time to do something about this. I need to wake up and you start practice, or you start therapy, or both, and you begin that process of beginning to open. And, and many, many people have described the process of awakening as, as like peeling off layers. And what Hamid's theory is, is that as you peel off the layers, as you hit different developmental stages, as you're working your way back farther and farther, you, you will uncover the issues and the wounds of those stages. And, you know, it's not, sometimes they come up, sometimes it's very painful when they come up. There can be a lot of fear, or a lot of anxiety. And actually the understanding is it's not so much of a problem if you're willing to look at it. Okay, so we're not, you're not here because you're a student of Hamid Ali. You're here because you're a Vipassana student. And, but guess what? Vipassana is known to be both a wisdom and a purification practice. And we love the wisdom part, right? So cool. You've got insights. You begin to see different things. Go deeper. Understand more. That, that part isn't often so very difficult. Sometimes it's a little difficult, but it's not so hard. But the purification piece can be really painful because it's the same thing. You're, you're, you're opening up the layers and you're coming into some of these unfinished, uncooked, wounded places. Close relationships often point us toward those places. 
that's one of the ways that they're very, very important. That when you let yourself be open to whatever the relationship is, whatever the nature of it is, and to really be there, even when it's hard, it will often show you some of the places where you need to do some work. So in the work that we do with couples, we teach that every relationship has, every, every dyadic relationship, and maybe even group relationships, has what we call in that work the third. So it's not that you have you know, two people, one and one is two. Actually, in the understanding of this work, one and one is three because you have the two people and then you have the relationship itself. And so the relationship itself requires um, attention. So here's a, a poem from Robert Bly that I think that describes this quite nicely. And you know, again, I invite you, even if, if, if intimate relationship is not your thing or not your lifestyle right now, <coughs> think then of your child or your parent or your good friend and work with it that way. He's describing it as the relationship between a man and a woman because he's actually, as I understand it, describing an event that happened between him and his wife at one point. A man and a woman sit near each other and they do not long at this moment to be older or younger or born in any other nation or any other time or any other place. They are content to be where they are talking or not talking. Their breaths together feed someone whom we do not know. The man sees the way his fingers move. He sees her hands close around the book she hands to him. They obey a third body that they share in common. They have promised to love that body. Age may come, parting may come, death will come. A man and a woman sit near each other as they breathe, they feed someone we do not know, someone we know of, whom we have never seen. So he's really talking there about how every act, every interaction between two people affects this, this third being, affects the relationship itself. Any gardener can tell you that if you create a garden, the intention for it to grow is not enough. Wouldn't it be great, you know, I'm going to have a garden grow. <laughs> and then it would just grow, you know. But it doesn't do that. You have to go out to it, you have to bring it your presence, you have to weave and, and dig and work. And, and, and the relationship, the third, is very much like that garden. This is a being, this is a, a place that really requires that that we devote time and energy to it and honor it and let the heart and mind open. And you know, it's such an arena for practice because how often do we go, I wish she were different. I really want her to be more patient or funnier or sexier, or kinder, 
or not to be such a mean boss, or whatever it is you want, or I hate that about him, you know, and, and we're just filled with aversion about how he doesn't do whatever it is that we want him to do. Or how many of us have been utterly deluded in relationships? Utterly deluded. Thought we had fallen in love, I'll bet everyone in this room, thought we had fallen in love with the most divine being, right? And then six weeks later you wake up and you go, what? Who is this? Do I really? No. And maybe it's more time than six weeks. You know, you're lucky if it's only six weeks. And so there you are. Greed, hatred, and delusion. Right there. Right in your everyday life. Demanding that you wake up if you want to. Hopefully, you do. So the relationship itself becomes an arena for waking up for working through these places that keep us from stuck and keep us from seeing clearly and for from an arena for opening ourselves for removing the obscurations to seeing clearly. And wise speech is particularly the practice of relationship. That way of learning how to speak with each other so that it can be done with presence and with honesty and so that it's helpful to everyone. Here at Vipassana Santa Cruz, or I guess soon to be Insight Santa Cruz, we'll talk about that in a little bit, um, we've been practicing on the board and in the Teachers' Council a practice of wise speech called council, where the only person who gets to speak is the person with the talking piece which is a marvelous way to learn how to speak, and one which we've found to be very, very helpful with couples as well. Because so often when couples talk to each other, or two people talk to each other, we're interrupting all the time. We just can't bear to hear each other out. And I learned, certainly with Russell, and I've seen it in other situations where I've done counsel, that when I have to listen to somebody all the way through until they're done, usually the place where I begin to go, oh, oh, they're sad, or they're scared, and I begin to cut them a little slack because my heart opens, that place happens after I would have interrupted. Isn't that interesting? It's after I would have interrupted. So if I interrupt fast enough, I don't have to open my heart. It's an amazing thing. And so the talking piece really allows you to have that practice of wise speech and to and to carry it through to a place where the hearts can open. So it's a it's a relationship, work <coughs> workplace or your family or your partner. You know, it's a place where over and over again things are presented to us that allow us to see that we're not waked up yet, that we have more more work to do. And it's also a place where we practice endless amounts of loving kindness. I, I noted, I had a, a note of a, a, a sutta passage 
in which the Buddha admonishes his monks. He says, a, a bhikkhu maintains bodily acts of loving-kindness in public and in private toward his companions in the holy life, verbal acts of loving-kindness both in public and in private towards his companions in the holy life, and mental acts of loving-kindness both in public and in private towards <coughs> his companions in the holy life. Well, that's fine for monks. Right, and absolutely just as true for us in all of our relations, relationships. Bodily acts of kindness, verbal acts of kindness, and perhaps quite importantly, mental acts of kindness. So all of this, again, begins to work at the centrality of I and me and mine. That place where we make self, concrete, solidified, and all important. And so so this practice of relationship also then um, deepens that that awareness that when when we self we cause we cause suffering. I think it's important to say that all relationships are not capable of having, and this is particularly true of couples' relationships, a third that um, survives. You know, sometimes relationships end. Sometimes they really are abusive and harmful and unskillful, and it's important to leave. And I did leave that first marriage after quite a bit of time, probably too long. And probably all of you have left relationships of one we all have. You know, we leave jobs, we leave, we leave partners. Sometimes we have to create distance from parents or children. So that's, that's an important thing to say, that this is not about making relationship, you know, the only vehicle of awakening. But it certainly is important to know that it is a vehicle of awakening. Because every new relationship, every relationship presents us with a teacher for our practice, you know. Rumi says in that wonderful poem, The Guest House, um, and he's talking really about interstates, but it's, it's very good for a relationship as well. He says, be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Yeah. So when we enter relationship with the intention of waking up, you know, we serve ourselves in a very deep way. We serve the other person because it's a very healthy and helpful way to be in a relationship. And, you know, we serve our communities because our communities desperately need people who are doing conscious relationships. So, I worked on this talk a lot today. And then I had some errands to do before I came here. I got in my car and I thought, oh, you know, it seems so simple. Can't I say something meaty about relationship life? Isn't there something really profound that I could give you that would just be, I don't know, unusual or different or something? And then I thought, well, you know, Jack Hornfield in that early book of his, talks about how all of Buddhist teaching can be summed up in two words, let go, let go, let go. 
And the Dalai Lama loves to say, my simple religion is kindness. And I thought, well, letting go and kindness, really handy in relationships. So, you know, I guess if that kind of simplicity is good enough for Jack and for His mm-hmm. Holiness, it's probably good <laughs> enough for me. And so perhaps those are two things then to carry with you as you go back into whatever your relationship is, that, that it is a place where we can practice letting go, and it's a place where we can continue over and over to be kind. So I found, I can find it here, a kind of an amusing poem from Rumi. I wasn't I didn't think I was going to read it to you, but actually it feels right. Because it fits in with letting go and the kindness. I'm not sure I would take it as a total recommendation, but it was called a relationship booster. He says, Rumi says, here is a relationship booster that is guaranteed to work. Every time your spouse or lover says something stupid, make your eyes light up as if you just heard something brilliant. Now there's a challenge. (laughs) (laughs) So, let's take a moment and see if there's any questions or comments.